this crime was planned with such incredible cunning and care that it looked like it would, could have been planned by Sherlock Holmes' nemesis, Professor Moriarty, but carried out by the Three Stooges. It's been 50 years now since someone stabbed, beat, and shot Rose Bush in her Knoxville, Tennessee home. It's a story that most people have never heard of. No one was ever charged for her murder, and it's doubtful now that anyone ever will be. I'm Leslie Ackerson. I'm John North, and this is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. The Rose Bush murder case is, without question, the most infamous unsolved murder in the history of Knoxville. Infamous. But for those of you listening, there's probably a good chance you've never even heard of it. That's because the police have no file, there's no remaining evidence, and most of the key players are now dead. We knew for a while that we'd been wanting to do this story. We had been, you know, eyeing the anniversary, knowing it would be a great time to kind of reflect back and look at this case. Um, but unfortunately, most of the times in our cold cases, we talk to investigators. And we couldn't do this because there's no, no file with the police department. This is one of those uh, unusual ones where you basically have to sort of go back and reconstruct as best you can any kind of information because, like you said, I mean, the lead investigator had moved away and was long dead. Um, witnesses are long dead. Neighbors aren't around. You've got very, very few people, in fact, who were still around who could talk about it. There was no evidence that KPD still has. They haven't got anything over there. They've got nothing left of this case, one of their most high-profile cases, and it's gone. Our starting point was going to the local library and digging into some of the print archives to kind of get caught up on the history. We also reached out to some of the journalists involved in this story, some of the few people that are still alive to this day that have written about it either when it first happened or, you know, did a 25-year piece to kind of help us understand a little bit more insight because they're some of the only people still around. I was a student, journalism student, at the University of Tennessee. That's the voice of Jim Ballack. He's a retired newspaper reporter, um, very passionate about this case. He later joined the ranks at the paper and really dove into this story years later after it happened and hit a 40-year anniversary. It was always in the back of my mind because it had always fascinated me. It's kind of ironic that the story ends up getting told by two of the journalists who were involved or who took an interest in it. Uh, that's obviously the first thing that that hits you is, oh, this is going to be a really big story. Now you're hearing Bill Allen. He's a lawyer now, but he was a reporter uh, years and years ago as a Sentinel, had just graduated, was working for the paper, and was really one of the first people to break the story and follow up on it uh, the days after they found Rose's body. Through the memories of these two journalists, through what we learned from the print archives, we're going to go back 50 years to when this all first began. November 19th, 1968. It was cloudy and overcast, kind of chilly that day. Apparently she was baking the cake. Rose has been described to me as a very sharp, shrewd businesswoman in her own right. Then when you get to know her, she was the sweetest, kindest, friendliest woman you could ask to ever to meet. Harry Bush was a very successful businessman, easily a millionaire, very active in the Jewish community. 
She was a really uh, pretty cautious person. I think probably part of that was at least because of the profession that she and Harry were in. They were in the jewelry business and they were in the loan business. So they handled money. They were very careful. They were very low-key about what they did. So she would have been a very cautious person. Um, our research showed um, she was a nice person once she got to know you, but she was not somebody that was going to be careless about, like, she would have the house locked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she would not be just letting anybody in casually. And she's there uh, around 5 o'clock. The maid has gone home. The gardener, ha- after the maid, the gardener leaves. And um, she's there in the house by herself. Harry had called her, I think around 5, some somewhere between 5 and 5.15, and said, I'm going to be heading home. He was downtown working at Gay Street. And so it's clear that it's, the, the window of time in which she was murdered was roughly only about an hour. That's it. The 68-year-old victim had been stabbed at least eight times, beaten in the head and shot in the hand. The killer or killers went to the door dressed as police. Seeing that it was a policeman, she opened the door and they had a, a gun with a silencer on it. Somewhere during the struggle, the, the first shot went into the wall and actually did strike Rose on the side of her hand. They took a paring knife from the kitchen. They picked up the knife and started stabbing her. The last stab, they broke the knife off in her chest. The handle was lying on the floor. And apparently the silencer wasn't affixed to the gun very well. Um, it sounds like they struck her, hit her with the silencer. I think it had a chip or a little bit of a deformity. The gun went off, struck her, I think it grazed her in the hand, and um, uh, it may have been a defensive wound. She's trying to kind of ward off blows, and they start hitting her over the head with it, Uh, but that wasn't all. She also had a small, like, paring knife with white tape around it. I think it was described as a kosher knife that she used, so it was specific. They knew it came from her kitchen, and the killers grabbed that, and began stabbing her repeatedly with that. We're not sure how long that Rose laid there dead, but it would be Harry when he came home from work later that night that would walk in the the door and find her body. Much mystery had shrouded the slain and intensive investigation throughout the night until late this morning when police discovered what they termed their first big break in the case. That's Bill Allen. He's reading an article that he helped write more than 50 years ago. Bill was one of the first people on the scene that very next morning. As the sun came up, eventually, so did new evidence. I remember pulling up on the street and there were a lot of police cars around. I knew a number of the police officers, so I just greeted them and just walked right into the house. At that time, they didn't have police tape all over the place. In some of the pictures that were printed in the paper, I think Alan actually pointed himself out. You see the police looking at, uh, I believe it was a a gun, right? Yeah, Or gloves and a gun. Right there, the police are looking at this evidence, and you see Bill, and he goes, there I am in the back right there, you know, watching. He was right there in all the action. Today... There is no way if, first of all, they wouldn't let you get close enough. The cops wouldn't let you get close enough. But they they wouldn't hold up a gun for display for a photographer to take a picture of for the newspaper. That just wouldn't happen. But it did back then. These 
very disturbing clues had been found indicating that this was a professional or a hired killing. Uh, some city crew uh, discovered some clothing that seemed to be related to the uh, to the scene and so we went flying over there. It was only about three blocks away from the house. A police department uniform, Cleveland, Ohio Police Department, police badge, uh, police cap had a fake badge on it and uh, a 22 caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol and a silencer broken. And the silencer had, uh, had a dent in it. And that dent on the silencer matched a gash on Rose Bush's head. And while we were there, they found the, the pistol. Uh, one thing I remember about that was that the police officer who found it just picked it up. No gloves on or anything, just picked it up and, and said, look what I found. I started covering crime back in the 1980s, and that wouldn't have happened even back then, but he walked right into the house, and while Rose Bush's body had been removed, I think he said there was still plenty of blood around. I think he maybe even talked about that the cake that she had been icing was still sitting in the kitchen, which, again, is sort of amazing because it had been, uh, let's see, she was murdered in the afternoon, and I don't think he got to the scene until, like, the next morning. We used to refer to Sequoia Hills as the neighborhood. Probably the wealthiest neighborhood in Knox County. A lot of old money at the time. So one of the most interesting things about this murder is the neighborhood that it happened in. This was not your crime-ridden neighborhood. It was fancy. It was wealthy. Only rich people lived there. Sequoia Hills is the name. Yeah, this is not the kind of place where you're going to have um, somebody who lives there murdered in the middle of the day. This is, like you said, it's rich people, and supposedly rich people don't have murders in their homes. You know, one thing that, that we did that morning was go around and knock on doors and try to interview neighbors and see if they had seen anything. Like everybody was just flabbergasted about it. Yeah, people would be shocked to find out that a murder ever happened there or any kind of violence, any sort of crime. Um, you would think it would be a, a pretty safe place to live. Yeah, but it wasn't. So Harry and Rose Bush lived at 1026 Kennesaw Avenue back when this crime occurred, and we actually had the opportunity to go inside 1026 Kennesaw Avenue. Yeah, that's one of the rare things you get to do. It, this was really kind of cool that we were able to actually go inside the house, and as it turned out, as you know, we had like a couple days before this was going to air that we actually had the chance to walk around inside of it and it was about to be torn down but I don't know what your impressions were but I don't know if you remember that afternoon it was kind of rainy and it was a little bit dark we went over in the afternoon so that kind of added to the creepiness of it and if you remember the electricity had all been shut off so it was just us walking around in that darkening house it was a huge property. Uh, I think there was like some marble floors in one room, big spacious rooms, but big windows. But it's it was still interesting to imagine, you know, there had been some sort of renovation inside, but it, it couldn't have looked much different inside than when the crime occurred. I think that's right. And, and the way we walked into the house was straight into the way that the killer walked in. Um, Rose was working at the kitchen. She let him or them in, or they forced their way in through that cor carport door. That was weird, just being able to kind of walk in and you're walking on the floor where her body was found. Harry Bush, Rose's husband, came home from work and found her lying in the kitchen floor. He actually ended up coming home from work a little bit late that day. He had run into some car trouble before he left. 
Well, there's some suspicion that that was deliberate, that somebody tried to mess with his car with a tire specifically, knowing that it would delay him getting home. The idea being if this was a hit, that they could delay Harry from coming home, keep him at work, and then that would give the killers time to go to the house, kill Rose, and Harry wouldn't get there until 6, 6.30, something like that. He did have a, there was a problem with the tire that did sideline him. He had to help get a co-worker to help him deal with that. Yeah, his store manager, uh, Mr. Barnett, is the one who dropped him off. It, but it was, the tire, it was flat in a way that you couldn't just pump it back up like you might if you get a flat out in the parking lot or something, run over a nail. It was purposely damaged that it was going to have to be like a next day sort of thing. But Mr. Barnett, I believe his testimony, he dropped him off and left without another thought, got him home. Mr. Barnett drove him on home. Harry walks into the house and finds his wife dead. He had an airtight alibi. He was at work and had a flat tire. His tire had been slashed, and so he had the greatest excuse in the world for not being anywhere near the scene at the time. In a sense, he had an alibi because, uh, if he was setting this up, he had an alibi because he uh, he had a problem with his tire, and so he had to get a, a co-worker to help him fix it. So that would have, if you're sort of planning something, that's helpful to say, well, you know, I got delayed going home, and you obviously know where I was because I was trying to deal with that. Unless you've hired somebody to kill your wife, which remains one of the questions about this killing. Uh, I know we learned in our reporting that... Um, they eventually had Harry take like a polygraph test. We've actually, I think, seen that machine, kind of a primitive machine now. They wouldn't use that today. And he passed it. So Harry passed that test, but then some details about his personal life started emerging, and then the, the focus really shifted on the case to a new suspect, his mistress. Hazel Davidson, beautiful woman, and she described herself as a playgirl. Of course, we all know who Hazel Davidson was. I never was able to interview her either. <laughs> Obviously, the big interview everybody wanted. Probably one of the most notorious women in Knoxville in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Hazel Davidson was known. I think she called herself a playgirl, and she liked being called a playgirl. It's fascinating that even 50, 60, 70 years ago, you could have somebody around that certain people would know about and who... I think it's fair to say probably had something to do with this killing. She and Harry, like you were saying, had been having an affair. I wonder, I, this thought always struck me. I always wondered if, like, Rose had any suspicions. Um, you have to wonder if, if Harry wasn't away sometimes and she thought, I wonder where he is, because they had no children. But anyway, Hazel knew people. She knew cops. I think in our reporting we heard that she paid some cops off on the police department that um, they certainly would have known her because she was engaged in things like prostitution and a madam. And um, she liked Harry, and it sounds like she had a good motive to want to kill Rose, to get Rose out of the picture. Five or six months after the murder, Harry moved to Miami, married the richest woman in America, Sadie Tish. It's kind of interesting that they both end up down in Florida soon after the murder, but the police didn't think they hooked up, if you will. I don't know. Common sense would tell you, eh, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they say anyway. Certainly, you would infer that Hazel sort of was motivated to try and get as close to Harry as she could, but for whatever reason, they didn't. I went back 
while we were doing this, I filed a FOIA with the FBI because I wanted to see what sort of records they could give us about Hazel that maybe were connected to Rose or Harry, if there was any kind of a any paperwork that they gave us that would reference it. And there are references from the 70s. I didn't run across anything from the late 60s, but I did get some paperwork that talked about Ro, uh, Hazel's time in Florida and her connections to Florida and maybe even moving hookers back and forth from Florida up to Knoxville. But no reference to Rose, unfortunately. From what we know, Hazel actually ended up dying in a nursing home. She really hadn't taken very care, very good care of herself. While Harry, on the other hand, lived a very long and happy, from what it seems, life. Harry outlived Sadie and married a third time, and he died at 103. Rose Bush is buried at the New Jewish Cemetery in Knoxville alone in a plot for two. Meanwhile, Rose is buried over... Uh, at a cemetery, Jewish cemetery here in Knoxville, an empty spot beside her. Actually went and visited the cemetery where Harry was supposed to be buried next to her. It's just blank with her, her name on one side and, you know, a blank spot on the left where he was supposed to be buried next to her. Uh, you went out there. I didn't. What was going through your mind as you were looking at that stone? It was sad. Um, I, I was shocked at how well preserved the cemetery was. You know, think 50 years, I think uh, in my naive mind, I think about kind of like a crumbling old tombstone. It was a very nice tombstone that was there, a pretty like mid-sized cemetery, um, a gated little area when you go in all uh, Jewish graves there. And it was her name, I think uh, her name in uh, Hebrew on there, as well as um, some other Hebrew inscriptions um, on the tombstone. And then on top of it, there were some stones, some rocks. And one of the girls here at our, our work, who um, is, his family is Jewish, was saying that that's where you kind of a visiting, like a sign of respect, um, that people will go and visit. It was interesting to see there were stones on her grave because you would think she has no she has no ties here, no children. Obviously, fifty years, not many people would know her. So you wonder, did people walk through this graveyard and put those on, having no idea who she was, but they saw maybe one that didn't have any on it, and they felt bad, and they wanted to remember that person. So 50 years later, there is still no answer and probably never will be. Yeah, let's be honest about it. And as opposed to a lot of these stories that we do, we go in with a chance thinking, yeah, there's a chance this thing's going to get solved. And if we shine some light on it, somebody may come forward, the cops may develop some information. That's not ever going to happen in this case. It's not ever going to be solved. It's been now more than 50 years the people are dead, there is no evidence around to be tested, and now the house is gone. If you don't solve a crime like that fairly quickly, it's not unusual that it remains unsolved. All but impossible for it to ever be solved, I think, in my opinion. And you look at those old archives, and this is a story that just, you know, dominated the front page that day and continuous days. This was definitely the big news, the big buzz around Knoxville. This wealthy woman in this wealthy area murdered Murdered in her own home like a week before Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah, it had to be a, it was obviously an inside job or a contract job or something like that. Somebody wanted her dead. Everything connected with it is, is slowly disappearing. It's just going to be kind of a story that's, that's passed along. And it's sad that there's never going to be any justice for, for this woman who was murdered. It's not ever going to get solved. And you and me and Tate, who worked with us on this case, 
we're some of the last people to walk in that house before it was torn down, and we're some of the last people that are going to remember that it happened.